fellow comrades, friends, others, uh, others interested in Marxism, maybe learning about Marxism and, and different things for the first time. Um, my name is Mitchell Jones, Mitchell K. Jones. I'm uh, one of the uh, members of the editorial board here at Midwestern Marx. And uh, with me today are Kala Winchell. Can you say hi? Hey. Uh, Eddie Liger-Smith. Hello. Uh, Alex Zambito. Hey, what's up? And Carlos Garrido. Hello, everyone. All uh, members of the Midwestern Marks uh, editorial board. We are joined today by Curry Mallet. Curry, Curry Mallet is a community organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Chester County, Pennsylvania. You can find his writings at liberationnews.org and liberationschool.org. Curry's an associate professor in the Department of Educational Foundations and Policy Studies at Westchester University of Pennsylvania released as a free downloadable PDF through Bloomsbury Academic. Curry's most recent book is A History of Education for the Many, From Colonization and Slavery to the Decline of US Imperialism. Uh, Curry, I wanna welcome you uh, and thank you very much for being here to discuss your article about uh, Lev Vygotsky. Thank you so much, it's great to be here. So um, thank you, Curry. Um, so, it looks like Eddie had a question to start us out with, so I'll uh, turn it over to Eddie. Yeah, thanks for being with us today, Curry. Um, could you give an introduction to who Lev Vygotsky was? Um, what does he mean for the field of education? Um, and how have his uh, theories, as you said, been stripped of their Marxist foundations? Um, and you also mentioned how references to Marx, Engels, and Lenin have been removed from his works. Um, so was that in his main work, uh, Mind and Society uh, and Thought and Language, or just in uh, secondary sources about Vygotsky? Uh, right. Thank you so much for that great question. Yeah, so, so Vygotsky was, uh, he was born in 1896 in Orsha, Belarus, which was part of the part of Tsarist Russia. Uh, he died in 1934 at age 36 of tuberculosis. Uh, so he, you know, was really able to do a tremendous amount of work, really revolutionizing the field of educational psychology and really in a short amount of time. Um, so Vygotsky, you know, a little bit more about Vygotsky. Vygotsky um, came from a Jewish family. And as a result, in Tsarist Russia, um, national minorities, ethnic minorities, um, faced a whole array of forms of discrimination and bigotry. Um, so Vygotsky's family, the Jewish community in general, were restricted to certain territories to live in. There were really strict quotas on university admittance. And so Vygotsky himself was almost denied admittance to university because of his background. Um, and at, you know, at the age of 15, he was kind of widely known amongst friends and family in his community as, you know, they called him the child professor um, because of his, his brilliance and his engagement with sophisticated ideas. Um, the Jewish community was also excluded from certain occupations. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of, about Vygotsky, who he was. He graduated, he, he wound up 
he wound up being admitted to Moscow University and he graduated in 1917, um, the year of the successful Russian Revolution. Um, and that had a tremendous impact on uh, the way in which Vygotsky viewed the world and the way in which he viewed educational psychology. Um, it was really a, a time of revolutionary optimism. Um, so it, was, it had a tremendous impact on the way in which he saw cognitive processes, not as fixed, fixed processes, biologically determined, which was the dominant theory of the day um, throughout the world and which remains um, pretty dominant today despite Vygotsky's ongoing relevance in the field of education in the US and elsewhere. So, you know, the way in which Lenin and Marx and Engels influenced the way in which sort of the, the dialectical approach to cognition um, was fundamental. And, and I suppose we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, but the last part of your question in terms of um, Vygotsky's work and the references to, to Marx and Engels and Lenin, those were removed from his, pri his, his primary works. His, not just the people referencing him or talking about him, but in English translations of his work. So, you know, that, that's, that, that was, a, that's a pretty big deal. And when we think about the, like I said, the widespread influence of his work in the, in the, field, of uh, in the field of education. So to this day, you'll be hard pressed to find anybody that's gone through an education program studying to be a teacher who hasn't at least heard the name Vygotsky and is at least somewhat familiar with, this, with the idea of the zone of proximal development and probably pretty familiar with the idea of scaffolding. So he's, you know, his work remains relevant, but it's uh, revolutionary orientation to this day remains um, really, you know, elusive um, in the way in which he's engaged within the U.S. especially. Wow, thank you. Of course. That's interesting. Uh, when, when I read in your article how he's whitewashed, I was expecting it to be like secondary sources don't talk about his references, but like militantly removing Marge right. Engels and Lenin as his reference, that's just another level of, uh, um, but it, you mentioned something there, which is uh, central to Vygotsky, uh, which leads us into the second question quite nicely, uh, which is the theory of uh, zone of proximal development. Um, what role does the theory play in Vygotsky's shifting of educational theory from a fixed essentialist stage theory towards a dialectical understanding of development? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I mean, it really is, you know, the, you know, what, what's referred to as the ZDD proximal development, you know, it really is the, the center framing, uh, of the the approach that he developed, the zone of proximal development. So for Vygotsky, the zone of proximal development, it really does speak to the social nature of cognitive processes. And that, like I was mentioning before, 
um, he was pushing back against the view of, so really an idealist view of cognitive development as biologically predetermined, ahistorical, timeless, um, that the, the development of, of cognition is as it is today, was the same in you know every other you know cultural context, social formation, time period, um, and 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 Vygotsky was saying no, he was saying that's that's fundamentally inaccurate. Essentially, he was pushing back um, against it. What well, you know, it may appear as though uh, cognitive development is ahistorical um, because we. Can very easily get caught within an atomized view of the of the social formation we're in, um, and unable to see its specific historical development over time. Um, and so, for Vygotsky, when he's thinking about the ZPD and he's thinking about the limitations placed upon um, national minorities within Tsarist Russia, and he's looking at the un, unequal educational outcome. And access, and he sees he sees the the social construction of that inequality, and so for him, when he's thinking about what is cognitively possible, he's not thinking about cognitive development on an individual basis. What's the what's the individual cognitive development of of people themselves? He's thinking. You know, influenced by by Marx and Lenin, especially, he's thinking about well, what's the cognitive level of development of of a society, of a social formation, and of and of particular social classes, and so he's interested in the particular level of of technology, um, and you know, the means of production, technology, um, access. To, to educational institutions that have a, a really determining impact on a, a class, the working class's level of cognitive development. And so he's pushing back and saying, you know, the, the, the level of cognitive development of a class, of a social formation is not predetermined. That doesn't come from biological determinism. That's historically constructed. And so, the zone of proximal development, he's thinking about, well, what can we, what can as a class, what can we achieve um, by ourselves individually um, in isolation in society versus, well, what can we achieve through the help of differently situated or more capable peers? So he's thinking about the role of the party um, as moving the the proximal development what's the actual or actual level of development what can we achieve on our own spontaneously versus what can we achieve achieve through organization through the that through that um really he's, he's talking about leadership he's talking about organization um so it was exciting time for him thinking about the moving beyond the limitations of Tsarist Russia. What can socialism open up in terms of, of cognitive processes? That there is no limitations. There is, there, there, is, there is no predetermined level that we're returning to. It's, an, it's open. 
it's an it's an open potentiality. This is his his understanding of dialectics and how do we move from where we're at to to where we want to be. And and the 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 destination can never be known beforehand. And so this is sort of what he's pointing at in terms of thinking about the zone of proximal development. So, you know, when you remove the dialectics, when you remove the the Marxism and Lenin's contribution, you wind up with a ZPD that is, is very narrow and limited. It's about what you know, peer teaching can look like in a classroom without any consideration of the larger social context in which it's situated in. You might be dealing with perhaps thinking about the zone of proximal development within a cultural context, but again, without it being situated in the larger political economic context. So when you remove when you remove those pieces, you really you really are you know taking the rug out from from the work and the approach and the project. It seems like this sort of depoliticized, stripped down version of Vygotskyism was uh, influential in the early uh, formation of uh, the public broadcasting system mm. and their early child development programming like Sesame Street and stuff like that. Is that mm. true? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, definitely, you know, for sure, the, you know, when, you know, when we're thinking about the the bourgeois state, the capitalist state in the U.S., and the and the kinds of, um, you know, quote unquote, I guess, kind of progressive, although I wouldn't call it that, sort of the liberal approaches to, um, to child development, to the, the Sesame Streets and whatnot, um, that you know, you know, perhaps might be, you know, in some instances, examples of that sort of depoliticized approach to the ZPD. You know, I think it's another interesting side note that we own, we're looking about, we own, we're looking at revolutionary Russia and the sort of, you know, perhaps one of the most, you know, exciting contexts of the 20th century. What was happening at the same time educationally in the US? We have behaviorism. We have, we have an attack on John Dewey who was coming to some similar conclusions about the the social and political context of education, those were sharply condemned. So we have, um, you know, in in the in the socialist world, we have this exciting revolutionary potential and opening up. Whereas in the U.S., we have the closing down. We have the the behaviorism, the doubling down on the belief that that. Um, People are like machines, and we can be uh, indoctrinated to think and do whatever those in power wish us to think and do. And that was sort of the major premise behind behaviorism, Thorndike and Skinner. That became that became the dominant model. Um, and then, of course, the the Espionage Act, the Smith Act, all of so we have this, um, you know, as the, the Russian Revolution inspired workers in the US, the response here, of course, was Russian conservative reactionary approach to education. So I think, you know, that's something too, you know, when we, you know, 
to go back to the question of Vygotsky and the depoliticization of his work. And that, um, that's another aspect that gets left out when we're looking at sort of the global totality. Um, and you know what was the context in which his work was developed versus you know what was you know what was the context in the capitalist world what was being developed in the capitalist world i think that's you know those are are, are important important markers and indicators um and, and you know and and points of, of political education to move beyond capitalism that kind of brings me to uh to my next question too uh in it in terms of uh sort of bringing the politics back into it um something we as marxists hear over and over and over is uh we're always told that socialism is against human nature because people are essentially greedy and selfish um how do you think we could use Vygotsky's theories of cognitive development and ZPD to debunk this objection specifically, and then also to challenge essentialism, racism, and social Darwinism uh, more broadly? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, so yeah, the first, uh, I guess that all the all the pieces are are interrelated to to the question. Um, so. Um, could you, I'm sorry, could you restate the first part of the question? Yeah, sure. So uh, we as Marxists often hear uh, repeated to us that socialism is against human nature because people are, are basically at their essence greedy and selfish. So how could Vygotsky's theories probably? Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Sorry about that. No, so I mean, you know, as a Marxist, Vygotsky was you know, extremely tuned into um, the social production of human nature, that human nature is largely determined historically. Um, and so he was interested in the new needs, the new forms of human sociability that can be developed and constructed in a new socialist society. So of course, Vygotsky is pushing back against any form of essentialism, any form of sort of a return to the subject of a predetermined subject, whether it's greedy, um, collaborative, collective. Um, I think Vy Vygotsky is pushing back against any form of predetermination and is interested in the 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 potentiality the possibility of of what can be created when human needs um, are put first and foremost um, and so you know the way i guess the way in which that relates to pushing back against racism and other forms of essentialism in, in education uh, you know, I suppose it stems maybe for Vygotsky's from his experience, his experiences living through bigotry and, and understanding the way in which uh, national minorities in Tsarist Russia um, were cognitively situated as biologically inferior um, biologically predisposed to, to negative traits, et, et cetera. So Vygotsky helps us understand that whatever educational outcomes um, 
may exist, that there is a, a social process behind them. And they can never be understood as the result of biological determinism. Um, I think that that sort of gets at, at that of Vygotsky's approach to cognitive development as an inherently um, as historical. And, that, and that, that's really what, you know, we're getting at when we say that Vygotsky's approach is historical. Um, that's his understanding of the general level of cognition has historical determinations behind it that we can understand and overcome through the zone of proximal development. Does that, does that answer your question, Mitchell? Yeah, uh, very, very interesting response. Um, and I was also thinking uh, in terms of um, that idea, that essentialism idea, right? That, um, and which I think, uh, you know, biodeterminism is, is very much, you know, part of that essentialist tradition that uh, people are unchangeable, that they have these biological, you know, uh, traits that affect their their cognition that's that's immutable that's um you know unchanging uh is a really is a really problematic uh, uh thing that unfortunately is still really kind of existent in in these fields and especially in sort of the cognitive sciences and stuff neuroscience and things like that right. they're still sort of wrapped up in that biodeterminism yeah, no, for sure. And there, there's a contra, you know, there, there's a contradiction that exposes the bankruptcy of these essentialist and behaviorist orientations, where on one hand they'll talk, they'll they'll be expressing this biological determinism, and then at the same time they'll be talking about the the kind of blank slates um, that people can be transformed into whatever you want them to be. And so you have the you have this like weird contradiction of this biological determinism coupled with this sort of mechanistic view as, you know, people that, as blank slates um, that can be molded to, you know, whatever, whatever, in whatever way capital needs them to be molded. I think. Oh, I, I, like, yeah. Um, so the social element seems um, pretty key, obviously, to this understanding, but how does that work then to scale up um, to educate sort of larger groups of people beyond a classroom? Um, because I think that seems to be the ultimate goal is not to just, you know, contain it within um, institutional schooling, but to expand it. Um, so how do we do that? Um, and sort of as a direct maybe where my thinking is going is would something like parasocial relationships that are generated over the internet is that a, a feasible substitution or is it really um does it necessitate that personal touch yeah um i mean i guess if you don't mind could you explain a little bit what you mean by parasocial sure sure sorry um it's usually thought to be uh, a unidirectional relationship um, over a platform like social media, um, where essentially the viewer um, 
feels that they're friends with the person mm -hmm. um, and that the performer will usually say things like, I love you all or thank you all, like mm -hmm. you're friends with them. And so it sort of conjures this um, sensation of relationship without mutuality. Okay. Um, it usually has a negative connotation, but I don't think it necessarily has to. Right. Okay. No, thank you for that. So, so the question being, what does, you know, what, what do Vygotsky's theories and approach, what might that mean for building a mass movement, perhaps? Yes, that's a great way to summarize. Cool. Um, and so can that, could that be done through social media? Could that be done through the internet or does it really require, um, a personal touch right um, exactly um so yeah yeah and even in, in in pedagogy i think about you know with the pandemic all these you know zoom classes and everything and the teachers were saying the kids weren't really learning anything you know but but i wonder could you you know over time could that develop in, in you know into something more productive right yeah, no, for sure. So if, if you want, I, I can jump in on this question. Um, so I, I think the, you know, the first, the, the first piece in terms of like, what, what does a Z, what does the ZPD look like in terms of building a social movement? You know, I, I think going to, you know, Lenin's works, what is to be done? Left-wing communism and infantile disorder. Um, you know, really, that, that's what we're getting at. We, you know, what are the, you know, what are the, um, you know, in the U.S. in particular, um, uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, really, you know, kind of a, a really a good summary of, of what Lenin learned in terms of building a mass movement in non-revolutionary times. And so, you know, I, I, you know, I think, you know, thinking about the, the lessons that, that we learned from Lenin about building a mass movement and being um, sort of in tune with the major issues um, and crimes of capitalism, the major issues that are affecting people's lives, sort of the major atrocities being committed by the capitalist class. Um, right now, you know, we're facing a major um, eviction crisis. Um, and though, you know, those, there, there's an opportunity there to, to reach out and to build um, an, a larger understanding um, about the nature of capitalism, the state apparatus that supports it. Um, why aren't our needs being met in a pandemic? Why are, you know, 11 million people facing possible eviction that there's ZPD work in there? Um, in terms of what this means on a on a on a mass scale, and of course, to, to be able to on here, we know the current situation, what the, the major issues that people are confronting are, and then we also need to kind of have a sense of where people's understanding is, and that's part of what what's. Vygotsky and Lenin are, are talking about in terms of taking a pulse of the political consciousness of the broadest masses of workers, being in tune with, with where people are at and their, their understanding um, and, and being, being conscious that yes, okay, so the, 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 the capitalist state might be um, 
practically obsolete, but if people still have some sense of hope that it could potentially still meet their needs, then we, then it's not yet politically obsolete. And if we move too far ahead of them, we'll lose them and we won't, we, you know, we'll be outside of the zone of proximal development. Um, and so what are those ways in which we can build with people and do political education um, to develop those understandings and be with people in their political development. That's what we get from Lenin, and that's what we get from Vygotsky, sort of situated or theorized at, in, in, in the educational context, uh, what, what that means. And so, you know, is it, can we do this through the internet? Um, I think we, we have been doing it through the internet. We've, we've, we've had to in the past year and a half. We've um, you know, in the Party for Socialism and Liberation, when the pandemic first hit and we all went on lockdown, we had to pivot. We had to think about how we had to halt all of our in-person face-to-face activities and think about how we can continue to move forward, but through digital platforms. It was a necessity. We did not have a choice. Um, and so, of course, there's limitations, but, you know, um, and I would say that, so, so there's limitations, you know, we, we began to do more um, uh, like public forums, public educational classes, more kind of internal studies um, as, you know, uh, those things, that, that's all we could do, you know, initially. Um, and as we were able to kind of figure out ways to get back into the streets. Our, our first major action getting back into the streets was doing car caravans. That was something that we could do, maintain social distancing um, without interacting, but we could still be out there talking to people through our cars. Um, and so, you know, we had to be creative. You know, and we're thinking about navigating the gap between where we're at and where we want to be. We can't just take and this comes from Lenin, Vygotsky is theorizing this educationally. We can't, it's, we can't always just take tactics that have been used in the, plat, in the past or another context and just sort of blindly apply them to our current situation. We need to be able to, we need to assess the current situation, the, the, the limitations, the, 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 the political consciousness of the people, the zone of proximal development, and, and through that creativity, um, develop ways to to engage and to move the the movement forward um and so you know i think there is a difference you know um the the situation of what's going on in public schools through zoom and the um the widespread dissatisfaction with those those platforms among students and teachers i, I think that's there's a different situation you know when we look at community forms of education, socialist forms of education, labor schools like in the 30s and whatnot, those problems of engagement didn't exist. Those problems of engagement are more prevalent in capitalist schooling. Um, when, we look, when we look at uh, initiatives created by people to solve our own problems and to develop a mass movement, those issues of engagement we don't really have those problems. It's a sort of different set of, of issues that we deal with when we're thinking about building a mass movement versus the, the problems in capitalist schooling of, of how to get students to go along with something that they may sort of intuitively, intuitively feel like 
is not quite right. Um, and so, of course, in the context of Zoom classes, those problems are exacerbated and, and students just check out. But I think that's how I, I would begin to think about those questions. So I kind of like wanted to um, ask about, I guess, let's shift like specifically to a U.S. context. So, uh, so from uh, the, so the U.S. has like maintained a system of um, residential schools for indigenous children for like over a hundred years. Um, and I think the last one didn't end until like the sixties and um, in Canada, they went until 96. And then, and then, and then also schools in the U.S. Uh, currently are still like very heavily segregated. So, um, I wanted to ask, like, how can Vygotsky's um, theories on education be applied to the U.S. given its legacy of settler colonialism and racialized capitalism? And um, do you see any place for, like, indigenous forms of education within Vygotsky's framework? And basically just, like, how can it be, um, be applied in, like, for, in the necessary process of decolonization in the U.S.? Yeah. No, great question. Thank you so much for that. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think a good a, a good work that deals with these questions is Sandy um, Grant's book, Pedagogy. Um, and so, it, you know, in that book, she's talking about the way in which um, in indigenous communities in the U.S. in particular, like you're talking about um, the, the long legacy of um, the boarding schools where as much as 95% of indigenous children were taken away, forcibly removed from their homes from the age five and up. And um, just the, the, the destruction that the, the, the cultural genocide that um, emerges from, from that context and the way in which um, capitalism continues to, to ravage indigenous communities. Um, so red pedagogy um, is arguing that uh, there's that indigenous educators, indigenous schooling um, in areas in, you know, amongst indigenous nations that still have, you know, a land base um, and control of their schools. Um, red pedagogy is arguing that there is a need for uh, a dialectical approach and an engagement with something like Vygotsky's work that is designed specifically to think about how to move from a situation of colonialism, of capitalism, of an imperialism to how do we develop a movement to, to move beyond it. And so, you know, in Red Pedagogy, um, we get discussions about, well, what is needed is, is a way to, uh, Grand talks about, to actively recover, reimagine, and reinvest indigenous ways of being, not as a return to something, but as a way to move forward and move beyond um, the situation that we're in. You know, and, and I think we can move to also, you know, we can talk about, you know, Cabral um, in Guinea-Bissau in, in the 1960s and the way in which um, the movement against Portuguese colonialism um, specifically uh, was designed to kind of overcome the long legacy of de-Africanization and the attack 
on indigenous culture. And so we're all talking about how well, if, if the people have, have an independent cultural existence, there is the possibility for national liberation, that it is within the people's um, independent cultural existence and this process of re-Africanization. And again, sort of like what Grant is talking about, not as sort of a, a way to go back to something, but as a the process of moving beyond colonialism, beyond capitalism, and the development of um, of a, of a new social formation with new unlimited potentialities beyond the the long legacy of colonialism. So yeah, I think you know Vygotsky is really helpful in those ways um, to think about um, in whatever context it's you know it um, to think concretely about what it means to to decolonize in actuality, um, sort of this dialectical, the development um, out of how do we how do we transform the situation that we're in into something qualitatively distinct? Um, and Vygotsky, I think, gives us a good place of departure for that. And so he would, you know, coming from that perspective, you know, we'd be interested in what's the political, you know. The, the current level of political development within whatever community that we're talking about um, and what are its historical determinations um, and what kind of political education and engagement and campaigns need to be created to move in that direction beyond colonialism. So, you know, I, I think that indigenous knowledge um, has, and continues to be to be fundamental you know i would say that you know cabral and others saw in lenin the same thing that vygotsky saw in lenin who was the author of red pedagogy uh, uh sandy grand g-r-a-n-d-e um so we've talked about racial essentialism which i think seems pretty key to vygotsky um i'm curious about a different essentialism that was mentioned just a little bit in the article um, and it's because of my specific interest in the intersections of disability justice and Marxism. Um, I think the term was, yeah, ableist theories of development. Um, could you just expand a little bit more on how this applies? Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, how, how would it be applied in the real world? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, you know, definitely, I think, you know, Vygotsky thinking about um, cognitive development um, as not fixed um, or essentialized. Um, I think there's a, a strong connection um, for, you know, when we're looking at critical um, disability studies and pushing back on um, sort of fixed definitions of how particular um, ways of being are pathologized um, and the way in which so-called ability tends to be defined around the needs of capital. Do we, have the do we have the ability to produce value for capital? And if not, we have a disability. We're unable to be useful for capital. Um, and so Vygotsky in, in the zone of proximal development um, is, you know, is fundamental in, in terms of understanding 
the historical manifestation of particular conceptions of the way bodies are conceptualized based upon um, the the needs for racial capitalism. And of course, you know, we have to, you know, capitalism has always, there's never not been a time where capitalism was not racialized when we're thinking about the development of um, capitalism through the use of, of slavery and whatnot in North America and what they call the Caribbean, um, that it, there's, it has always been um, a, a gendered and, and racialized um, capitalism with particular conceptions of how ability is defined based upon those changing needs of capital. A great answer there. Um, I had one question because I had, or I have quite a few people in my family who are either Spanish teachers or they are English as a second language, ESL um, helpers. <clears throat> um, so there was a, a part in your piece that talked about um, the normative um, discourse within capitalist education, um, where we call it, we don't call it uh, Spanish speaking, we call it um, second language or foreign language classes. Um, so right. you could, can you talk about that a little bit and, and Vygotsky's theory as applied to um, uh, so-called foreign language classes? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, for sure. You know, so, you know, Vygotsky pushing back um, in all of the in all of these different ways. Um, uh, we, you know, when we're thinking about um, the way in which capitalist schooling um, devalues nationalities, devalues language, um, moves to um, and, and, you know, I think there's a connection there to Cabral and Cabral is thinking about um, the way in which deculturalization has always been a part of the colonial project. Um, and, and why language is so fundamentally important um, for in terms of nationality, why, you know, after when the, the period of the forced boarding school era ends, um, why the the move to restore indigenous languages has been such a fundamental piece of that. Um, when we're talking, when, you know, when we're thinking about um, the definition of a nation and that process of of, of decolonization. Um, and so, you know, in the classroom context, um, viewing students. Um, whose first language is not um, English, but something else as not as a deficit, but as an attribute, as something to be built upon and strengthened. And there's political education in that, in that as well from a Vygotskyan perspective and understanding the, the larger social um, process through which how does, you know, how is it that, in, it, that English is the dominant language in North America. What's the historical process through which that happened? Um, English as a foreign language. What's the process through which that, which that happened and how has that been part of the process of colonialism and the development of capitalism and the, the uh, assimilation of different peoples into this US capitalist system? Um, and so pushing, pushing back against um, the, uh, the normatization of English 
is important in building the kind of broad-based nationalist movements um, that's necessary. I don't know if that kind of get starts to get at your question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was great. Um, so I have a question, and this is from Tim, who couldn't be here, um, but I think I may have actually kind of jumped the gun, um, and, and we've talked about it a little bit, but I'll, um, I'll ask it anyways and um, see if we can pull any more out of it. Um, okay. His question is, um, how does the internet affect the processes in Vygotsky's theories? Has the internet squeezed the ZPD or expanded it? Yeah. Um... I mean, probably both. Um, you know, the discussion about uh, the the Zoom format and you know for public schools um, certainly has you know limited you know my own experience teaching at the university level in the past almost two years through Zoom. It's been it's it's been limiting um, in terms of the ability to develop and, and use the kind of uh, critical and revolutionary pedagogies that that we typically use in a face-to-face -face situation it's been it's been challenging to do that um, through zoom um, but at the same time the internet has really expanded our reach. We're able to talk in, to so many more people. We're able to reach so many more people through the internet that you know that we weren't able to to reach before. You know, and sometimes and sometimes it's through um, the parasocial means where we might create. You know, where we might create a like this, like like this podcast. People are going to listen to it and watch it, but they're not directly interacting with it um place and p and and we and we learn from podcasts and we learn we're able to learn from um from para parasocial engagements um and, and ways of um presenting information um but it, it you know i don't believe that it can be it's not the only mechanism it's in and of itself it's not enough um and so um, you know, I would say that that you know there, there's challenges, um, but it's you know, and you know, and our ability to to reach and talk to so many more people, you know, that also creates um, challenge it, its own set of, of challenges. Um, but so I, you know, I would say I would say both. I would say it does both. But but ultimately, um, you know, I guess as a Marxist, I'm not a Luddite, and so you know, Marx challenges us to think about not fighting the technology, but to understand the ways in which the technology can serve revolutionary purposes in a social, in a different context. And so how can we use the, these platforms and these technologies? How, how can we sublate their, their use to build the mass movement? Uh, fascinating answer, comrade. I, as soon as I hear, uh a both and i'm like oh, this guy knows how to, <laughs> he knows dialectics um but yeah absolutely what we see on one end is almost the sacrificing of quality um and as as someone who started their teaching career through zoom 
um, and that now rolled into in person, I have really been able to tell that difference, right? The level of emotional energy that you can get out of a classroom when you're in person, is just completely different. But the stuff that we can do online, I mean, we have videos uh, from our TikTok that have like 6 million people that have seen it. You just can't get that level of quantity um, right. in terms of in-person engagement. So it's it's a both and, it's a plus and, and a minus at the same time. Um, so for, for our last question, I, I wanted to ask you, how can we promote a better understanding of the masses uh, ZPD in our organization so that we can be, as you phrase it in the article, uh, more in tune with the mood of the masses and not have this sort of premature calls, which as you also mentioned, ultimately abandon and alienate the working class. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I would reiterate the need to, uh, to be engaged with, with people, um, that sort of the balance of, you know, between, um, the need to the need the need for a party as part of the working class to play that leadership role but at the same time the mood of the people and the engagement with the people also informs the party itself um so there's this dialectical relationship um and so um that ability to be able to talk to people to listen to people to, to understand where they're coming from, how they're viewing their particular situation, um, and then those political interventions that we can engage in, that Lenin offers so much um, advice and tips and lessons to be learned. You know, I think, a, a, and actually a really good book too that gets at this is Robin Kelly's book, Hammer and Ho, um, about the communist movement in the 1930s in Alabama. And the mistakes that communists from New York made in the South based upon their lack of knowledge and understanding of the context and the zone of proximal development of the communities down there. So I think there's a lot of lessons in that book in terms of the mistakes that can be made when um, organizers are not in tune with um the communities that that in, in which they you know are coming from and are and are working in um but then also how those mistakes can be overcome great well thank you so much for this interview i think we all appreciate you taking time to answer our questions and um i really enjoyed the article as well and i'll be reading more into vygotsky and i didn't know him before so thank you awesome thank you so much for having me i really appreciate all your questions so good to meet you all. Solidarity. Thank you for coming on board, comrade. Cheers. Cheers.